Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kale, and thank you so much for joining me this morning for this Dischem Medical Monday. And... Uh, yeah, I thought, let's talk about something that affects most of us in one way or another. And uh, I've invited into studio Dr. Miranda MacDonald. We're going to be talking about allergies. You know, whether it's hay fever, whether it's allergies from pollen, whether it's hay fever or allergies from cats, and uh, food allergies. Food allergies are also very, very important, and they seem to be on the rise. I don't know if perhaps it's better reporting of allergies or if the food allergies are on the rise. So welcome to uh, allergy expert and allergy specialist, Dr. Miranda MacDonald. She is in private practice in Bulgaria, and just so that you know, she's a GP with two qualifications in allergies. So welcome and thank you so much for coming to High FM this morning. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having me. What happens in the body that causes an allergic reaction? Why do we react to certain things? I think the main point, the starting point should be how do we become allergic? Yes. So we become allergic by being exposed to a foreign protein. Now, if you're not allergic, your body is, your body is constituted your immune system in the most basic form of antibodies, white blood cells, and then a chemical background that forces it into a certain direction. Now, if we are allergic and we have a genetic ability to become allergic, the first time we're exposed to an allergen or a protein is your body is skewed towards the allergic pathway, then gets processed by white blood cells, and they then give us antibodies. In the case of allergy, it's called an IgE antibody. Somebody that is not allergic produces IgG antibodies. So that's an incorrect signaling. The next time you are exposed to that allergen, whether it's a cat, a dog, a peanut, any one of those, what happens is it bypasses that system because now it's fast and reactive. And what happens is is we... Um, it's those IgE sit on a white blood cell called a mast cell, and it sends a signal to the cell we are under attack. This cell doesn't know it's an incorrect signal. The cell breaks open and releases a whole host of chemicals so that it can react against what it believes a threat, either bacteria, parasites, or viruses. And what then happens is it releases histamine. Now, histamine is the first thing that gives us itch, run, sneeze, and wheeze. For that, we'd use antihistamines. But what a lot of people don't know is two days later, the cell is still active. And it it gives a whole lot of chemicals, and it's now calling more white blood cells. Once those white blood cells have arrived, it causes inflammation. And that's what gives us the more chronic symptoms of allergies, the blocked nose, the severe asthma. To a certain degree, eczema, but eczema has works with T cells as well. Okay. So just before you go on, I just want to clarify. You yeah. say um, that it is a protein. Our body is reacting to a protein. Yes. So would that be true if somebody has an allergy to dust? Yes. Or cause is dust a protein? Yes. It's the, it, all organic matter is made out of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And so, so even if it's pollen, it's a protein. It's a protein okay. component in the pollen. I've never thought of it as protein. Yes. <laughs> Not good for the venting. Okay, so if we're on an anti-carb diet <laughs> and we have allergies, does that count? Okay. It's extra calories <laughs> Okay. Um, all right. And then histamine is causing the itch, sneeze, hiss, and wheeze. Yes. And then you said like a few days later, those, those cells are still active. Yes. So if I'm having an allergic reaction now, does that mean that the allergen was something a few days ago? Yes, depends what your symptoms are. So if you're having a blocked nose in it's springtime and you, you had a you have you, you can either uh, in the in the old terms we describe them as runners or blockers. So you could either have massive hay fever sneezing the whole time, that's your histamine component. 
Or you could sit with what people would generally refer to as sinusitis, which is just basically allergic rhinitis, which is the severe blockage, stuffiness, asthma getting Ooh, out of control. And that's when your face gets sore, and that's yes. when you, your head feels all clogged. And yes, and you can't breathe through your nose. That's the inflammatory part, and that means you've been exposed all along. The problem is, is, is that it builds on itself. So in the case of grass allergy, which is our most common inhalant allergy, it builds because you're being exposed every single day to that. Very interesting. My guest is Dr. Miranda McDonald. We are talking about, she's an allergy specialist, and we're talking about allergies. If you've got any questions, any comments, if you perhaps have outgrown an allergy, or if perhaps you've taken on an allergy that your whole life you haven't been allergic to, I don't know, pink flowers, and all of a sudden you're allergic to pink flowers. Let us know. I'd love to hear from you. It would be, I think, very, very interesting. And this is how you get in touch with me this morning. You can send an SMS on 34519. That's 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send a telegram, which is probably the best way. I can't believe that we're back to telegram. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) It's your free telegram app. (laughs) uh, That number is 061 Eight nine five one zero one nine. You can get hold of me via the Chai FM Facebook page, which is one zero one point nine Chai FM. You can uh, email from anywhere in the world on air at chaifm.com. And how do you spell Chai FM? C H A I F M. You can even tweet at Chai FM. Lots of different ways to get in touch. So uh, I, f- I found it fascinating. The body is the most complicated but beautiful work of art ever. Absolutely. The way that it works and all the different systems that have to work with everything else. It's a, it's, it's a miracle that we, that we actually here talking to one another, Miranda. <laughs> okay, so, um, can you outgrow allergies? Yes. So, um, it, it's described as the allergic march. So the allergic march would be, we, um, Typically, the allergic march has been changed in recent publications, but the, the, it basically boils down to we develop food allergies and eczema within the first six month, uh, six months of life. At about three, we start to, um, it peaks. Yeah. It tapers down and about at six, seven, a lot of people would have outgrown this. Frequently, the more severe ones and the ones with nut allergies, only about 20% of those will outgrow it and that they will stay and have that allergy for their life. The most common ones to outgrow is the egg and the milk allergy. And although they're very severe when they, when children are young, they can outgrow them relatively easily by six. There's data to suggest that we are now outgrowing our allergies later and some reports of up to 16 when people are only outgrowing their food allergies. Allergic rhinitis is the opposite. So... Because it's low doses that we're exposed to through the environment, through us breathing it in, what happens is is that we become sensitized and then allergic. Sensitized is that when you have antibodies but not sick yet. Allergic is when you have antibodies and you are sick. And it it peaks at around 12. It then basically rises and it can start to, to outgrow it by about 18. But... I think there's enough adults out there with chronic allergic rhinitis, persistent sinusitis that can tell you they haven't outgrown it. So interesting. Um, you know, there's some uh, very famous people who are allergic. <laughs> Apparently Halle Berry. Oh. She is very, very, very allergic to shrimp. Okay. Okay. That's that's quite a celebrity Yeah, and it's very specific to to shrimp. You know, she's not allergic to other fish, but she's allergic to shrimp. Um, so, what happens in our bodies? I mean, you were explaining about the histamine and yes. releasing histamine, and how long that effect is happening. Yes. Is that irrespective of what the allergen is? Yes, but in in the case of food, so what happens with pollens is 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 that we become those mast cells sit where they are exposed to the most. So in case of pollen, they're mostly in our nose and our our airways, sometimes in our skin. And so that would be the target area where the most 
mast cells with those antibodies on. And so that's where your symptoms would be concentrated. In the case of food allergies, it's often far more widespread and the dose is much higher that you'd be consuming. So what happens is, is that histamine then has a systemic component to it. And what the histamine does in those severe cases is it opens up the arteries because that's the reason histamine is there, to open up arteries so white cells can leak out and go fight the infection. But now these arteries open up very much. The gaps between the cells become bigger and a lot of fluid leaks out. So that's the swelling component of an allergic reaction. What it does in your lungs is, is it causes that, that wheeze, so it constricts your airways. Especially if you're an asthmatic, you're at much higher risk of having a severe allergic reaction. And then in the late stages of a um, severe allergic reaction, what happens is, is that because all of those arteries have opened up, your blood pressure drops. And that's, um, that's usually when a, an anaphylaxis, that's what we refer to as an anaphylaxis. And that's, that's a very, very severe reaction that, by that, that stage. That is very severe. Eighty percent of them will start with a skin and a, um, a skin reaction and swelling. So what people think is that they have seconds to respond. But I always tell my patients, you've got minutes to respond to hours. It's not that you are something's going to happen to you within seconds. And that's why you need to be prepared for those reactions so that you have a plan, you've practiced your plan, you've talked through your plan so you know exactly what to do. Because minutes, if you're fumbling around, can take some time. But, but there is a, there's, there's a, it's always a balance between making patients understand the severity of it, but also that they do have time to respond and that you do, if you are prepared, that you can Manage a lot of those allergic reactions. As I was explaining to you um, before the show, I was explaining off air to um, Dr. McDonald that the reason that we're talking allergies is because it's top of mind at the moment. A young father in our community, highly allergic to bees, two Thursdays ago was stung on the face three times. He had his EpiPen, he did the EpiPen shot he still had the reaction. Um, I mean, right now he's, you know, he's still in a, in a coma. Um, and please God, he'll recover and he'll be well. But how, I mean, that's why we're talking about allergies, because it'd be, it could be anything. It could be that you invite some people over and you're cooking with sesame oil and somebody didn't tell you that they had an allergy to sesame oil. And the food allergies can seem to be more severe than other allergies. With the exception of bees, I think. <laughs> Clearly, bee, bee allergies are a very serious uh, matter. Yes, um, my thoughts are with that family because that's the last thing that we ever want to happen. And so we work very hard that those, the severity of those reactions can be counted. From the details you'd given me, I haven't seen the case, I haven't evaluated it, but, but I think there are some things to take into consideration. If we are stung in our face, there's a massive blood supply in our face. So whereas if you get stung on the toe, it takes a far longer period for that po- the venom to, to get throughout your body. Yeah. And so you have a much faster distribution of this. The second component is, is if you get a very high dose of it, which in his case he did. And then... One, we always advise that you keep two EpiPens with you. And what happens is, is an EpiPen, the adult one is 0.3 milligrams. If you go into emergency room, we give you 0.5 milligram as an adult. And what I teach my patients and in the action plan is, is if your EpiPen hasn't given you sufficient relief, you give your second EpiPen. And so, I'm not familiar with the details, but those are things that we really can take to heart. And um, I think the dose was also quite significant. Yeah. It's a bizarre, bizarre circumstances. Okay, let's get back to talking about food allergies. Can we talk about Bamba? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for anyone who doesn't know, Bamba are like our local fling chips, only they're peanut flavored. And 
it's basically what Israelis give their children from day dot. You know, have a hair, have a bamba, <laughs> eat a bamba. Um, but what's so interesting is because it's got peanut additives, which every doctor will tell you never to give your child peanuts under the age of three or whatever the case is, um, Israel has a very, very low incidence of peanut allergies. So are we doing our children a disservice by not exposing them to lots and lots of different elements and possible allergens from a young age? Absolutely. That has been proven, and the American Pediatric Society that had those recommendations out removed those recommendations. So at the moment we are... That recommendation is early peanut introduction from 4 to 11 months because the Bamba snacks actually opened up a whole world and it actually revolutionized food allergies in the world that there was a gentleman called um, Gideon Lack in the UK and he had observed that there was a genetic population in London that was highly allergic to peanuts and they were following this a Western protocol of avoid, 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 because we were trying to avoid the food allergy epidemic. And a similar population group in Tel Aviv, and these children were not allergic. They then did further more elegant studies proving that this is, this might be the case. And then, uh, uh, uh Dr. Lack and a gentleman called Dr. Jo- George Detoy that was proudly trained in Cape Town, um, did a study in the UK that was published. It's called the LEAP study, L-E-A-P. And the LEAP study showed that even if you start to have antibodies to peanuts and we introduce those peanuts between 4 to 11 months, we have a relative risk reduction of 80% of developing a food allergy. And it has been tried to be replicated in other foods the evidence is there, but it's not overwhelmingly there that it, it goes for other foods. I think if we, some people, we've just now assumed that that would be the next case. The evidence is not 100% there. But the current recommendations is that we start introducing allergenic foods from four to ele- in that window of 4 to 11 months which is completely the opposite. I even raised my children, which was avoid, avoid, avoid. Um, and in that way, we can prevent food allergies. The LEAP study had two things, and this becomes a public health concern, and that's why they haven't um, ma- uh, taken up in all guidelines yet, is that if a child has severe eczema, moderate to severe eczema, and an egg allergy, they are at higher risk for having a peanut allergy, and they should be tested first. But if your child does not have severe, moderate to severe eczema and does not have an egg allergy, then it, it can be introduced safely at home. How will you know if they have an egg allergy? They would have been exposed to egg. Okay, so you, they would yeah. have had a reaction the first time yes. that they have that yes. they have it. Eczema is frequently the first sign that you're dealing with an allergic baby. And once again, there was um, there's been studies done of uh, two groups of babies. They took the one group of the babies, and we know this prevents allergies. They took the one group of babies and covered them with an emollient every single day, and they the other group was just covered with normal creams and the group that had the emollient um, emollients that covered them significantly had a reduced rate of allergies and so it looks to us that um, that the race for becoming allergic to foods is twofold it's the race that we become allergic through our skins and the race for tolerance, in other words, for being able to eat certain foods through our, through our guts. So if we can introduce it through our guts and our bodies can convert it to what we call a TH1 system, which is your non-allergic system, then we've won. If we have the eczema and we are unable to overcome that, then that's when we end up with the allergic children. It's not translated in a complete therapeutic model yet, but what we can say is, is is that we need to introduce our children to all allergenic foods before they are one.
All right. So you said some, so many interesting things in, in that explanation. <laughs> so between the ages of four months and 11 months, that's yes. when you start introducing the possible allerg- allergens, yes. whether it's peanuts or fish or eggs or cheese or whatever it is. It's quite interesting because in that time of our life, that's when we have most of our initial vaccinations. Yes. So the body's already building this library of things to react to and things not to react to. So it would make sense to do it in that in that time. Yes. Also, we have a big gland behind our sternum, this your breastbone called the thymus, and the thymus's job is to produce antibodies. So, and as we get older, the thymus shrinks. So our most immune that um. We call it immune modulatory, but the age at which we can manipulate your immune system is when you are younger. It's also the higher risk system because of little children being exposed. I just want to say with that 4 to 11 months, it's age-appropriate introduction. So, you know, we still start with the basic foods and, but then we just would, where we would introduce beef, we'd introduce fish. And so we're not going to give an 11 month old peanuts to eat, but we'd give him bamba or, um, peanut butter. Peanut butter. A little bit of peanut butter yes. in oatmeal or, you know, yes. something and like that. that. And that would, uh, that would include the other nut butters as well if we can manage to get hold oh, yes, of those. Oh yes, of course, almonds and all of that. Yes, cashews, macadamias. And then sesame, the tahini, that's the other um, very prevalent allergen. And the tahini, which is also very much consumed in Israel, um, which there's a lower. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sesame oil. Yes. Because these are very, like when I think of sesame oil, seafood allergies, egg allergies, these are people who have very, very strong responses. Yes. To yes. it. Yes, there's a, that's those that we would consider to have an anaphylaxis. There are some cases of people with a low sensitization where we call it the threshold dose and they might not respond as severely, um, to those allergens. But unfortunately there's no predictive model. So I can't say based on, um, what has happened that you definitely will never have a severe reaction. And that's why we prepare for for those reactions. Is it possible to vaccinate against allergies? No, um, but we always recommend vaccinations. But there is an exciting food allergy module that's being offered, and it's called um, oral tolerance induction or immunotherapy. Where we would give these children immunotherapy, like they're using in cancer treatment. Yes, the same immunotherapy. It's not the same. So there's different parts of immunotherapy. Okay. So immunotherapy in the case of bees, we would inject you with a bee venom, and that would make you, in 90% of cases, immune to the bees, because um, then your body starts to produce those IgGs I were talking about, and they block at those mast cells. In the case of food. We used to refer to it as oral tolerance induction. In other words, we give you what you're allergic to, and at some point your body makes a shift, and then you can tolerate that food. This is not to be done at home and is, can have very severe reactions. And so it's something that's done under really um, close supervision. It's now called immunotherapy because they suspect that after five years, some people's immune systems would have changed and they can stop the peanut. However, it's it's not widely published and there's varying results of it. In that case, we'd call it desensitization. In other words, let's say we did that to peanut for you and you've eaten the peanut um you can eat 17 peanuts a day because that it would be a dose, so it would be like medicine that you take every day. Um, if it is stopped, it's not guaranteed that you um, you would retain the the memory of being tolerant to that. And so that endpoint is is still unclear um, with with changing the course of that disease. How common is a soya allergy? In South Africa, it's actually very rare. Because our soya is in everything, I suppose. Yes. And I I see severe (laughs) soya allergies very little. What we see a lot of is soya, what we call sensitization, 
In other words, I get patients referred to with a SWEA account, uh, with high SWEA account, and everybody's... What does that mean, a high SWEA account? The, the blood count. So oh. the uh, bloods are done, they have a high... It's it's classically, it's wheat, SWEA, and peanut. The values are high. These children get referred to me f- for further management. And what we always must do is is we must treat the patient and not the test. And so this child has been eating peanuts their entire life. They've been eating soya their entire life. They've been eating wheat their entire life. I mean, they've been feeling shocking, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. What happens is, is in Gauteng, we have a massive grass allergy. Yes. And so those values are very high. And there's a protein in grass that's repeated in those three foods. And the antibodies of those, the, uh, when we test them, come up, but it's a false positive. So it's your grass showing up as antibodies to those foods, but you aren't allergic to them oh, wow. at all. And that's a false positive in the lab that happens because of a protein called profilin. Because those antibodies are so specific, they don't just recognize the peanut, they recognize a specific area on the peanut. And so also when you have a peanut allergy, we can test which proteins it is. So if there's a protein called ARAH2, and if you're allergic to ARAH2, that's a predictor of severe peanut allergy. So those children typically, because it's a reflex on your testing, will come back with a peanut count of 24. They've been eating peanut all their life, hmm. their ARH2 is negative and they get taken off the peanut. The moment we remove food from somebody's diet, even if they are what we call sensitized, so sensitized means you have antibodies, but you aren't allergic, we can push them into allergic disease. Oh, interesting. So we shouldn't just randomly take children off foods, firstly for their health benefits, but also you can make somebody allergic. Clearly, if they've been having allergic reactions, we don't know why, and then we take them off. That's something completely different. But um, peanut allergy, wheat and soy allergy, does not give you a blocked and a runny nose. It's the grass allergy that gives you the blocked and the runny nose. Okay, so that's going to be my next question. I know mm-hmm. somebody who says that he has a soya allergy. Yeah. Um, and how does he know if food's got soya in it or if he's eaten soya? He gets very, very tired. And he gets tired for about three days afterwards. And then he knows and he'll go back and then he'll go back and he'll look mm. at ingredients and he'll see mm. that there was soya. Soya is very difficult. So soya is it being added to everything. It's, it's in everything, everything. that comes from a packet. So I always ask patients, do you eat soya? No, 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 we don't. Then I say, do you eat anything that has been that's come from a factory and they say yes and then I say you're eating soya. No, even bread. Even yes. bread, you know, when you go into supermarkets and they have these breads, I mean we you know, often I'll go and I'll buy a, a kicker, a, a yes. challah. Um and when you look at the ingredients, they put in soya as a bulking agent. Yes, and like they just want flour. But the Could we not have gluten <laughs> and could we not have added gluten and added soya? Just one flower. So the um, the soya is also very much found in the low GI breads, and there I see allergies, um, especially in adult onset allergies. So with the advent of low GI bread, the way we get it low GI is by adding soya, which is a protein. So it doesn't give you that rise in blood sugar that the carbohydrates does. So all of these low GI breads specifically have a lot of soya in them, and that often is the rise of the... Um, of a soya allergy. Remember a few months back, um, reading an article about a kid who could never go outside because they were allergic to sunlight. Do you know? Is this a, is this a real allergy? Yes, it is called. It's part of a condition called chronic spontaneous urticaria, and that is a. That I'm glad is you a, had to say that, and I didn't. <laughs> The next one is going to be even better. It's called an inducible, so it's a chronic inducible urticaria. In the past, it was just simple. It was physical urticaria. So those are patients. And what's interesting is, is urticaria is the skin rash. That's the hives. Now, hives can be a symptom. In other words, I eat a peanut and I get the hives. Um, and that's quite simple. I had it and I can very clearly see it. 
if you have hives every day for more than six weeks, then it doesn't become an allergy anymore. Then it's an autoimmune condition. Now, I see a lot of these patients because of the hives. They get referred to me. And the autoimmune component, that, that is the urticaria, the chronic urticaria. And then it's a condition on its own. Now, a subgroup of that is physical urticarias. And the sun can induce it. Cold can induce it, which is, I've had some emergency calls this week of children whose hands were out and then they get it. They're playing sport for those children are difficult. Um, pressure can cause it. So often if they've worn high heels, their feet would swell. Um, where okay. their belts are. Can we just stop right there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, is that not a general condition associated with wearing high heels? No. <laughs> This is this is this is like going into little puffer feet as well. Oh, I like that. Puffer feet and itch. <laughs> right. So that's the physical component of it, and it's a difficult condition to manage. Luckily, with a sunlight one, they if you put sunblock on, it works as well as long sleeved clothes. When when you hear about all these these different conditions that that we could have. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it also makes me so grateful not to have any of these very serious allergies. If you had to do top five hit, hit parade, yes. right? <laughs> the top five most common allergies, what would they be? So I'm going to talk from my practice. Yes. Um, the number one is allergic rhinitis, which is what people would refer to as sinusitis, which they try to manage in a whole variety of ways, including dietary ma- manipulation. Most of the cases, it's just dust mite or grass. That is one of the most common ones I see. Um, eczema, um, especially the more severe forms of eczema. Um, and that's a very debilitating condition because it affects your entire life. You can't get away from the itch. You can't get away from anything of it. Food allergies, absolutely, um, in the variety, the varieties that it presents itself. And before I'd say in adults, if we can have a subgroup of those is anti-inflammatory allergies or we can say medication allergies. Oh, that's Which interesting. Adult onset. I think also my population of patients are quite skewed, so I I see a lot of that. I'm, in the general population, it is not as uncommon. Uh, it's not as common. Um, Would that be like antibiotics? Antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, disprin. People have reactions to all of that. Yes, very interesting. Antibiotics. They they can get an uh, they can get a whole host of problems. So they can get um, skin rash, urticaria. They can get anaphylaxis, the most severe form. It can aggravate their asthma. Um, it can just give them those chronic urticaria, those hives that just come up. Especially you see it in um, elderly patients that are put onto ecotrin or. Oh, trade name. Um, on a, a cardiac discipline. Don't worry, and we all have a half of discipline <laughs> in our medicine cabinets. I think those words are okay. so interesting. Ecotrin just went out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and those, um, so, uh, for, to protect their heart, they get put onto it, and then they develop this chronic urticaria, which they don't understand. We take that away, and it, it gets resolved. So medication allergies are, are also frequently see. I think I've met with them. With medication allergies, mm-hmm. got a cousin who's a very, very good golfer. Yes. And he was taking um, statin. Yes. And it made his joints sore. He thought that he was developing arthritis. And only when he stopped taking the statin did the pain in his joints go away. Is that an allergic reaction? No. So we refer to medications as, as adverse drug reactions, and I can go through the whole classification, but that would fall within the side effects, and that is a very well-known side effect of a statin. I think the most important thing around that is, is that patients understand that, it's a, that there's a massive difference between being allergic and having a side effect. The moment you say that you're allergic, it means there's an immune component to it 
and often then doctors won't prescribe something in the same class. They'll avoid other medications. And that, you know, I have patients that come and they're 60 year old, they come with a whole shopping list full of medications. And we literally have to sit and we work out this medication, this happened, this was a side effect. No, this was an allergic reaction. And as we get older, we need medication more. So we need to be very clear if we're developing a side effect or an allergy to those because both of them have a very significant impact on your on your quality of life. It's such an interesting topic that I've forgotten to actually just mention your name again. So I'm speaking <laughs> to Dr. Miranda McDonald. She's an allergy specialist. She's actually a GP who has two qualifications in dealing with allergies or Yes? Correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, she's got a private practice at, uh, in Bligari, but she's also, you've just opened up in Rohima Musa. Yes, it's a... It's a former a, Helen Joseph, isn't yeah, it? Uh, yes, we, uh, Coronation. Coronation, sorry. And I was, uh, had a colleague that worked there that would often phone me and ask me and asked if I would come and help her there. And so we've recently started working there, which oh, has been really, really beautiful and challenging. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I wonder how many allergies, I mean, are more, are certain population groups more prone to allergies? And the reason I ask this is because when I think of like skin cancers, you know, the white population with our fair skins, we've got less of that, uh, what's that pigment called? Melanin. Melanin. We've got less melanin, which makes us more prone to skin cancers than somebody, you know, the darker your skin is, the less chance you have of getting skin cancer. So, are there, you know, can allergies, um, does it fit with the genetic population? Yeah. Okay. So yes. let's just talk so a little bit first about, you know, does it affect certain, um, populations more than others? So one of the things that is part of this, um, quest to find out why allergies happen, and we're getting, I think, closer to it for the first time since, clearly since I've been in allergies, is that we know that if you live in a rural area, and that includes farming, we know that your risk of allergies are significantly less. So if your mother was pregnant and worked on a farm, or if you lived on a farm when you were young, you have a far less chance of becoming allergic, and that's got to do with the, all the bacteria that you're exposed to. Mm-hmm. And in the early, they, they did a study in Causa children in the 70s, and these children would typically walk 15 kilometers to school. They, ha- they tested them. Some of them were allergic. They tested their lung capacity. Although they were allergic, they had no symptoms. This study was repeated in the 90s, and there was a significantly higher component of those children that became allergic. And then it was repeated in the urban area, and absolutely those children became just as allergic. So it's more a case of what you have been exposed to. So urbanization, without a doubt, puts us at a much higher risk, irrespective of your population group you come from, than anything else. And so at Rahima Musa, I've seen some of the most devastating allergies that I've seen in a long time. Really? Yes. yes what absolutely. kind of allergies? Like very unusual ones? No, that would be a severe eczema and multiple food allergies um, and and asthma. So it, it's exactly the same as in the general population. I also think, once again, it's a it's kind of channeled into an allergy clinic that you find the more severe children that that you find there Hmm. so interesting um you you mentioned dust mites what allergies do dust mites cause house dust mites are very interesting i mean they look disgusting (laughs) and one doesn't want to think about them you know (laughs) but uh it's just kind of a fact of life right that we have to share our worlds with god knows (laughs) what kind of whores and things but uh what allergies are caused by dust mites? So dust mites are very interesting. Firstly, it's not bed bugs. So you cannot see these guys. I think that's always the first thing. So they are, they are, they live in our soft tissue, in our soft furnishings in our houses, but not only in houses. They live 
anywhere where there's organic matter. So we even find them where there's storage of foods. Um, and they, they procreate by, um, using heat, humidity, and food. The food is organic matter and frequently it's our skin cells. So they love our beds because our beds get warm and our beds get moist from us sweating at night. So our beds and our pillows are beautiful breeding grounds for them. In Johannesburg, we protect it from the dust mites because it's higher and drier. At the coastal areas, people with house dust mite allergies suffer more. So what they can give you is allergic rhinitis or sinusitis, as people would refer to allergic asthma. And um, they have an enzyme that they secrete. That's a very potent enzyme, and that can aggravate your eczema even if you are not allergic to them. But they can also be part of your eczema allergy profile. Hmm. So they give a whole host of, of problems. And then the very rare but interesting one is that they, there has been cases, um, described of, um, they call it pancake anaphylaxis of patients with severe dust mite allergies. They eat ready-made pancake mixes with some of these mites in and they got anaphylaxis. Oh, I've never seen one and I, I think it's maybe uh, one of those legends. <laughs> no, they've been published, but it's uh, very rare. <laughs> so how often should we be changing our mattresses and our pillows? I always say to patients, if it's it's quite simple. If you are not allergic to it, it doesn't really matter. No, so come on, Miranda. <laughs> I, I don't want to sleep with those whores, really. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a little bit more selective. I won't. No, uh, I don't. I, no. <laughs> I'll give you my advice to my dust mite allergic patients. No down duvets, no down pillows, not even if they're really? allergenic. They love them. Down. Yeah. Uh, so... But once again, if you are not allergic to them, then good cleaning habits are good. So vacuuming your house within a reasonable amount of time, vacuuming your mattress, putting your duvet out in the sun actually does work. It kills them. Um, and then removing the bites by vacuuming them, not having too many scatter pillows on your bed. Same story. They live in those scatter cushions. But for me, the the thing with allergies and with all of these things is we need to have a balance because you can compulsively clean and remove them, but they never were bad for you in any case. I think a pillow... Will we become allergic to them if we do clean them all the time? Do you think we'll develop an allergy to them? No, but I I think if you have a massive dose of them continually, especially when you are younger, you absolutely can develop them. Okay. But then I did house dust mite avoidance in my son, and um, he's highly allergic <laughs> to dust mites. So I did it uh, to uh, prevent him from becoming allergic, and, and you made him allergic. allergic. <laughs> so you actually decided to become a, you know, this allergy expert by practicing on your son. Is that no, how it was? No, okay. it was actually after the fact, but I, <laughs> I wasn't successful in that case. <laughs> <laughs> are there any sprays or anything that we can get yes. to, uh, to Those kill these Those are called ascarides, and they work. They kill the mites, but they need to be done every three weeks because these mites regrow. And once they're dead, we still need to remove them. If we remove them with a vacuum cleaner, the vacuum cleaner must have a filter called the HEPA, H-E-P-A. A HEPA filter prevents the mites from just being sprayed out on the other side. Otherwise, you oh, that's right. With the, with the exhaust, yes. yes. And um, I always say to my patients, please don't buy a ten thousand rand vacuum cleaner. You just need one with this filter. And there's a whole range of them that are completely affordable. You do not need the most expensive one on the market. Are you talking about vacuum cleaners, or are these filters vacuum. that you can get to your existing? So uh, some vacuum. manufacturers have existing filters that you can add. My my vacuum cleaner has that. But some um, don't. And often now they will have these bagless um, vacuum cleaners with a built-in filter. So it depends on which brand you, you choose. So interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we need to get a HEPA filter. Yes. If you Where do dust mites actually come from? Where do like how do they end up even in somebody's bed or pillows? And oh, how, often do, how often did you say we should change our pillows? Oh. 
I wish you could see the expression on Miranda's face right now. She's <laughs> rolling her eyes. Yeah, I, she knows. I'm scared to give you the statistics. No, give uh, us the statistics. Hello. We're tough. We can take it here. A fellow that's five, uh, five years old can have up to 10% dead house dust mites in it. Well, so they're dead. They're dead, but you're breathing in the dead particles. Um, I once work. was in a hotel and I opened the pillowcase for this dust mite allergic child. And this was in 2010. And the pillowcase had written the date of 1994 on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, bad idea to, um, Put the date on your pillowcases if you're not going to be. Just take your own pillowcases <laughs> if you're going to hotels, right? What, what I advise dust mite allergic patients, you get the dust mite covers and those patients travel with their dust mite covers and they put them on the hotel. Where do you get them? Would you get them at like Discam or? You, you buy them online and then the bed shop. I haven't seen at Discam. The mm-hmm. most important part of it is they must be plastic on the inside so they can have a toweling on the outside but the entire thing must be plastic it just creates a barrier between you and the mites that sounds fantastic do you get yes. those kind of things for mattresses as well yes you do get them for mattresses as well and you i've just bought on because firstly now. that's going to be washable secondly it's got yeah it just creates the barrier because that it's entire colony yes that entire colony in inside. the mattress is <laughs> are there certain mattresses that are better so, for example, a spring mattress covered in foam versus, you know, a really fancy um, all-foam mattress with, yes. like, all the multiple layers. All these latex um, mattresses. To be honest, those things come out of industry or out of the bedding industry. And there's no research. So what I've been telling you today comes from the scientific research sure. component. and. Those two have not matched. So I haven't read any papers that I can say to you which beds are, would be the best. I think in that case, especially if you're sensitive, vacuuming, using your ascarides, and if you can put the mattress outside in the sun, it does work as well. We, we sometimes advise people to freeze their children's soft toys. That's another way to do it. Oh, that's them. a good one. But, yes. but can't you just wash them? Yes, you if can. If you're washing soft toys, won't it? Uh, some children need them to look ugly and grimy you know the little kids with uh, their special bunnies that needs to look uh, ugly and grimy is. you know yeah <laughs> we don't want to mess with that <laughs> <laughs> all right um just very quickly did you say that allergies are genetic genetic in that your mother was allergic to milk so you will be allergic to milk and your children will be allergic to milk there's no mendelian um transfer of the gene so it, it's not as clear as that but on different genes it is coded so there's absolutely a genetic ability to become allergic so you have it in your genes to become allergic you then need to have exposure and we then think that this gut microbiome in other words the bacteria in our in our stomach is what plays one of the key factors and that plays into the hygiene hypothesis and this coming off the farms so those are very much the case. So we, it's a, it's a complex factor of genetics and then epigenetics. Epigenetics is when we can change the genetics by what we are exposed to. So you could be alert, uh, have an allergic family, live on a farm, be the fourth child because children born later generally are less allergic, um, have not have a Caesar, be breastfed, that changed your epigenetics and you're not allergic, but you had the genetic ability to become allergic. Having said that, I've got a lot of patients that are the fourth children that were born without a Caesar that are allergic. So it's not a foolproof plan yet. Interesting. But those are the factors that we know absolutely make a difference. Yeah. To somebody who's perhaps pregnant at the moment and wants to kind of boost the immune system of this unborn child, what would you say to, you know, pregnant couples, pregnant moms that they should expose themselves to during the pregnancy that could possibly aid that baby? 
so from a breast, uh, from an eating perspective, if you are pregnant, it's um, there are old studies that show preventing is better. Those have not been replicated since we've got leap studies. So I would not advise that. What I would advise is have an absolutely normal um, diet. Prebiotics, in other words, fermented foods, foods that contain bacteria, yogurt, all of the fermented foods aid in our gut um, um, health. Probiotics, the strain and replacing them have not absolutely resulted in the um, outcome that the outcome is better. So if you take a probiotic, there's there's not... That's not within the guidelines of any of the allergy societies, um, except with the World Allergy Organization. So the other allergy societies worldwide feel that there's a positive information regarding that. The other thing is if you can have a normal delivery instead of a Caesar, that absolutely makes a difference. That's been proven. Breastfeeding, up to six months helps for the prevention of eczema up to that period in time. And um, then the covering of the baby with the emollients. Those are what's proven in science to um, reduce the risk of this child becoming allergic. And then the early introduction of the solids, of the allergenic solids. Absolutely fascinating. How do people develop water allergies? Have you heard of this? Yes, this is part of the chronic urticaria. This is the inducible um Urticaria. So that falls within that cold, heat, water, uh, pressure, sun, all of exercise. All of those fall in that within I'm the inducible. Very <laughs> <laughs> no, ser- seriously. I mean, how do people with an allergy to water live? How do they clean themselves? What do they drink? How do they cook? I mean, our bodies are eighty percent water. Uh, that that's. Uh, the, frequently the water component will just be an aggravating component. So those patients will have those those wheels and those urticarias most days in any case. Those patients we medicate. So we put them onto high doses of antihistamines and that we then control because you cannot go without the water. My guest, Dr. Miranda MacDonald. She is a GP. She's got two qualifications in treating allergies, and she's in private practice in Blegari. We've been talking about allergies, and I just wanted to say uh, thank you very, very much for this time. Thank really, you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's me. been so interesting talking to you and just finding out all the different things that can happen and the the different things that we can have a reaction to. And we didn't even get to talk about some people. <laughs> anyway, I made light of that. <laughs> to you, I wish you a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I'll be back same time, same place next week for the Discam Medical Monday. God bless.